Section 48 of The History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, InterfaceAudio.com. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 2, Chapter 3. Progress of Scientific Chemistry in France, Part 5. It is well known that many metals held in solution by acids may be precipitated in the metallic state by inserting into the solution a plate of some other metal. A portion of that new metal dissolves and takes the place of the metal originally in solution. Suppose, for example, that we have a neutral solution of copper in sulfuric acid. If we put into the solution a plate of iron, the copper is thrown down in the metallic state, while a certain portion of the iron enters into the solution, combining with the acid instead of the copper. But the copper, while in solution, was in the state of an oxide, and it is precipitated in the metallic state. The iron was in the metallic state, but it enters into the solution in the state of an oxide. It is clear from this that the oxygen, during these precipitations, shifts its place, leaving the copper, and entering into combination with the iron. If, therefore, in such a case we determine the exact quantity of copper thrown down, and the exact quantity of iron dissolved at the same time, it is clear that we shall have the relative weight of each combined with the same weight of oxygen. If, for example, 4 of copper be thrown down by the solution of 3 to 5 of iron, then it is clear that 3 to 5 of iron requires just as much oxygen as 4 of copper to turn both into the oxide that exists in the solution, which is the black oxide of each. Bergman had made a set of experiments to determine the proportional quantities of phlogiston contained in the different metals by a relative quantity of each necessary to precipitate a given weight of another form its acid solution. It was the opinion at the time that metals were compounds of their respective calces and phlogiston. When a metal dissolved in an acid, it was known to be in the state of calx, and therefore had parted with its phlogiston. When another metal was put into the solution, it became a calx, and the dissolved metal was precipitated in the metallic state. It had therefore united with the phlogiston of the precipitating metal. It is obvious that by determining the quantities of the two metals precipitated and dissolved, the relative proportion of phlogiston in each could be determined. Lavoisier saw that these experiments of Bergman would serve equally to determine the relative quantity of oxygen in the different oxides. Accordingly, in a paper inserted in the Memoirs of the Academy for 1782, he enters into an elaborate examination of Bergman's experiments, with a view to determine this point. But it is unnecessary to state the deductions which he drew because Bergman's experiments were not sufficiently accurate for the object in view. Indeed, as the mutual precipitation of the metals is a galvanic phenomenon, and as the precipitated metal is seldom quite pure, but an alloy of the precipitating and precipitated metal, 
and as it is very difficult to dry the more oxidizable metals, as copper and tin, without their absorbing oxygen when they are in the state of very minute division, this mode of experimenting is not precise enough for the object which Lavoisier had in view. Accordingly, the table of the composition of the metallic oxides which Lavoisier has drawn up is so very defective that it is not worth while to transcribe it. The same remark applies to the table of the affinities of oxygen which Lavoisier drew up and inserted in the memoirs of the Academy for the same year. His data were too imperfect and his knowledge too limited to put in his power to draw up any such table without any approach to accuracy. I shall have occasion to resume the subject in a subsequent chapter. In the same volume of the Memoirs of the Academy, this indefatigable man inserted a paper in order to determine the quantity of oxygen which combines with iron. His method of proceeding was to burn a given weight of iron in oxygen gas. It is well known that iron wire, under such circumstances, burns with considerable splendor, and that the oxide, by the heat, is fused into a black brittle matter, having somewhat of the metallic luster. He burnt 145.6 grains of iron in this way, and found that, after combustion, the weight became 192 grains, and 97 French cubic inches of oxygen gas had been absorbed. From this experiment it follows that the oxide of iron formed by burning iron in oxygen gas is a compound of iron, 3.5, oxygen, 1.11. This forms a tolerable approximation to the truth. It is now known that the quantity of oxygen in the oxide of iron formed by the combustion of iron in oxygen gas is not quite uniform in its composition. Sometimes it is a compound of iron three and a half and oxygen one and a third, while at other times it consists very nearly of iron 3.5, oxygen one. And probably it may exist in all the intermediate proportions between these two extremes. The last of these compounds constitutes what is now known by the name of protoxide or black oxide of iron. The first is the composition of the ore of iron so abundant, which is distinguished by the name of magnetic iron ore. Lavoisier was aware that iron combines with more oxygen than exists in the protoxide. Indeed, his analysis of peroxide of iron forms a tolerable approximation to the truth. But there is no reason for believing that he was aware that iron is capable of forming only two oxides and that all intermediate degrees of oxidation are impossible. This was first demonstrated by Proust. I think it unnecessary to enter into any details respecting two papers of Lavoisier that made their appearance in the Memoirs of the Academy for 1783, as they add very little to what he had already done. The first of these describes the experiments which he made to determine the quantity of oxygen which unites with sulphur and phosphorus when they are burnt. It contains no fact which had not been stated in his former papers, unless we are to consider his remark that the heat given out during the burning of these bodies has no sensible weight as new. The other paper is on phlogiston. 
It is very elaborate, but contains nothing which had not been already advanced in his preceding memoirs. Chemists were so wedded to the phlogistic theory, their prejudices were so strong, and their understandings so fortified against everything that was likely to change their opinions, that Lavoisier found it necessary to lay the same facts before them again and again, and to place them in every point of view. In this paper he gives a statement of his own theory of combustion, which he had previously done in several preceding papers. He examines the phlogistic theory of Stahl at great length and refutes it. In the Memoirs of the Academy for 1784, Lavoisier published a very elaborate set of experiments on the combustion of alcohol, oil, and different combustible bodies, which gave a beginning to the analysis of vegetable substances, and served as a foundation upon which this most difficult part of chemistry might be reared. He showed that during the combustion of alcohol, the oxygen of the air united to the vapor of the alcohol, which underwent decomposition, and was converted into water and carbonic acid. From these experiments, he deduced as a consequence that the constituents of alcohol are carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, and nothing else. And he endeavored from his experiments to determine the relative proportions of these different constituents. From these experiments he concluded that the alcohol which he used in his experiments was a compound of carbon, 2,629.5 part, hydrogen, 725.5, water, 5,861. It would serve no purpose to attempt to draw any consequences from these experiments, as Lavoisier does not mention the specific gravity of the alcohol. Of course, we cannot say how much of the water was found merely united with the alcohol, and how much entered into its composition. The proportion between the carbon and hydrogen constitutes an approximation to the truth, though not a very near one. Olive oil he showed to be a compound of hydrogen and carbon, and beeswax to be a compound of the same constituents, though in a different proportion. This subject was continued, and his views further extended, in a paper inserted in the Memoirs of the Academy for 1786, entitled Reflections on the Decomposition of Water by Vegetable and Animal Substances. He begins by stating that when charcoal is exposed to a strong heat, it gives out a little carbonic acid gas and a little inflammable air, and after this nothing more can be driven off however high the temperature be to which it is exposed. But if the charcoal be left for some time in contact with the atmosphere, it will again give out a little carbonic acid gas and inflammable gas when heated, and this process may be repeated till the whole charcoal disappears. This is owing to the presence of a little moisture which the charcoal imbibes from the air. The water is decomposed when the charcoal is heated, and converted into carbonic acid and inflammable gas. When vegetable substances are heated in a retort, the water which they contain undergoes a similar decomposition. The carbon, which forms one of their constituents, combines with the oxygen and produces carbonic acid, while the hydrogen, the other constituent of the water, flies off in a state of gas combined with a certain quantity of carbon. 
Hence, the substances obtained when vegetable or animal substances are distilled did not exist ready formed in the body operated on, but proceeded from the double decompositions which took place by the mutual action of the constituents of the water, sugar, mucus, etc., which the vegetable body contains. The oil, the acid, etc., extracted by distilling vegetable bodies did not exist in them but are formed during the mutual action of the constituents upon each other, promoted as their action is by the heat. These views were quite new and perfectly just, and threw a new light on the nature of vegetable substances and on the products obtained by distilling them. It showed the futility of all the pretended analysis of vegetable substances which chemists had performed by simply subjecting them to distillation, and the error of drawing any conclusions respecting the constituents of vegetable substances from the results of their distillation, except indeed with respect to their elementary constituents. Thus, when by distilling a vegetable substance we obtain water, oil, acetic acid, carbonic acid, and carburetted hydrogen, we must not conclude that these principles existed in the substance, but merely that it contained carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, in such proportions as to yield all these principles by decompositions. As nitric acid acts upon metals in a very different way from sulfuric and muriatic acids, and as it is a much better solvent of metals in general than any other, it was an object of great importance towards completing the antiphlogistic theory to obtain an accurate knowledge of its constituents. Though Lavoisier did not succeed in this, yet he made at least a certain progress, which enabled him to explain the phenomena, at that time known, with considerable clearness, and to answer all the objections of the antiphlogistic theory from the action of nitric acid on metals. His first paper on the subject was published in the Memoirs of the Academy for 1776. He put a quantity of nitric acid and mercury into a retort with a long beak, which he plunged into the water trough. An effervescence took place, and gas passed over in abundance, and was collected in a glass jar. The mercury being dissolved, the retort was still further heated, till everything liquid passed over into the receiver and a dry yellow salt remained the beak of the retort was now again plunged into the water trough and the salt heated till all the nitric acid which it contained was decomposed and nothing remained in the retort but a red oxide of mercury during this last process much more gas was collected all the gas obtained during the solution of the mercury and the decomposition of the salt was nitrous gas. The red oxide of mercury was now heated to redness. Oxygen gas was emitted in abundance, and the mercury was reduced to the metallic state. Its weight was found the very same as at first. It is clear, therefore, that the nitrous gas and the oxygen gas were derived not from the mercury, but from the nitric acid, and that the nitric acid had been decomposed into nitrous gas and oxygen. The nitrous gas had made its escape in the form of gas, and the oxygen had remained united to the metal. 
From these experiments it follows clearly that nitric acid is a compound of nitrous gas and oxygen. The nature of nitrous gas itself Lavoisier did not succeed in ascertaining. It passed with him for a simple substance, but what he did ascertain enabled him to explain the action of nitric acid on metals. When nitric acid is poured upon a metal, which it is capable of dissolving, copper, for example, or mercury, the oxygen of the acid unites to the metal and converts into an oxide, while the nitrous gas, the other constituent of the acid, makes its escape in the gaseous form. The oxide combines with and is dissolved by another portion of the acid, which escapes decomposition. It was discovered by Dr. Priestley that when nitrous gas and oxygen gas are mixed together in certain proportions, they instantly unite and are converted into nitrous acid. If this mixture be made over water, the volume of the gases is instantly diminished because the nitrous acid formed loses its elasticity and is absorbed by the water. When nitrous gas is mixed with air containing oxygen gas, the diminution of volume after mixture is greater the more oxygen gas is present in the air. This induced Dr. Priestley to employ nitrous gas as a test of the purity of common air. He mixed together equal volumes of the nitrous gas and air to be examined, and he judged of the purity of the air by the degree of condensation. The greater the diminution of bulk, the greater did he consider the proportion of oxygen in the air under examination to be. This method of proceeding was immediately adopted by chemists and physicians, but there was a want of uniformity in the mode of proceeding and a considerable diversity in the results. Monsieur Lavoisier endeavored to improve the process in a paper inserted in the Memoirs of the Academy for 1782. But his method did not answer the purpose intended. It was Mr. Cavendish that first pointed out an accurate mode of testing air by means of nitrous gas, and who showed that the proportions of oxygen and azotic gas in common air are invariable. Lavoisier, in the course of his investigations, had proved that carbonic acid is a compound of carbon and oxygen, sulfuric acid of sulfur and oxygen, phosphoric acid of phosphorus and oxygen, and nitric acid of nitrous gas and oxygen. Neither the carbon, the sulfur, the phosphorus, nor the nitrous gas possessed any acid properties when uncombined but they acquired these properties when they were united to oxygen. He observed further that all the acids known in his time which had been decomposed were found to contain oxygen, and when they were deprived of oxygen, they lost their acid properties. These facts led him to conclude that oxygen is an essential constituent in all acids, and that it is the principle which bestows acidity or the true acidifying principle. This was the reason why he distinguished it by the name of oxygen. These views were fully developed by Lavoisier in a paper inserted in the Memoirs of the Academy for 1778, entitled General Considerations on the Nature of Acids and on the Principles of Which They Are Composed. When this paper was published, Lavoisier's views were exceedingly plausible.
They were gradually adopted by chemists in general, and for a number of years may be considered to have constituted a part of the generally received doctrines. But the discovery of the nature of chlorine, and the subsequent facts brought to light respecting iodine, bromine, and cyanogen, have demonstrated that it is inaccurate, that many powerful acids exist which contain no oxygen, and that there is no one substance to which the name of acidifying principle can with justice be given. To this subject we will shall again revert, when we come to treat of the more modern discoveries. Long as the account is which we have given of the labors of Lavoisier, the subject is not yet exhausted. Two other papers of his remain to be noticed, which throw considerable light on some important functions of the living body. We allude to his experiments on respiration and perspiration. It was known that if an animal was confined beyond a certain limited time in a given volume of atmospherical air, it died of suffocation, in consequence of the air becoming unfit for breathing, and that if another animal was put into this air, thus rendered noxious by breathing, its life was destroyed almost in an instant. Dr. Priestley had thrown some light upon this subject by showing that air, in which an animal had breathed for some time, possessed the property of rendering lime-water turbid, and therefore contained carbonic acid gas. He considered the process of breathing as exactly analogous to the calcination of metals, or the combustion of burning bodies. Both, in his opinion, acted by giving out phlogiston, which, uniting with the air of the atmosphere, converted it into phlogisticated air. Priestley found that if plants were made to vegetate for some time in air that had been rendered unfit for supporting animal life by respiration, it lost the property of extinguishing a candle, and animals could breathe it again without injury. He concluded from this that animals, by breathing, phlogisticated air, but that plants, by vegetating, dephlogisticated air. The former communicated phlogiston to it, the latter took phlogiston from it. End of section 48. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, Interface Audio dot com.